This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Oh, pressed the wrong button there. Let's try that again. Dustin Broadberry, welcome back to the trenches. Thanks for having me back, man. How's the war treating you? It's a lot easier at the moment, actually. Um, but I mean, it's the same old, isn't it? It's it's covered by another means. It is. It really, really is. I mean, what has changed since you and I last spoke? Well, so much, man. I mean, here in the UK, we've we've dropped all restrictions. Um, you know, we've gone from. Uh, being joined at the hip to COVID to, quote, you know, quote unquote restrictions, yeah. <laughs> getting hitched to our Ukrainian brides. But it's the same <laughs> thing, you know, it's it's um, it's people's preponderance for, you know, falsehoods, fabrications and false profits. And that continues. It's the, the, the cultural ideological takeover of the human psyche. No, nothing has changed on that front. Um, you know, the, the focus um has gone from COVID to the ukraine but it is the same uh, ruse and the same deception that it that is afoot here isn't it so what you're saying is that the west is dead i think i touched upon a few of those themes in in the article um certainly the the old world well, has has sort of burned to the ground yes but it's well been if it's not dead, dead. If it's, it's not, not dead, dead, it's on life support. If it's, then it's on life support. It's on life support. I agree, yeah. But I think, uh, you know, they've learned some very important lessons, haven't they, throughout, you know, the new normal. And mm. all of that is being ramped up now with this, uh, this you know, phony war in Ukraine. Um, and even, you know, even the right thinking amongst us we, we kind of require the equivalent of a cerebral chainsaw to, to hollow out um, the slew of implausible narratives into something even remotely resembling reality, right? It's very difficult to navigate, but there is a lot of predictive programming in there. I think there's some of the revelation of the method going on whereby they're not just deceiving you, they're telling you that they're deceiving you and they're not just laughing at you. You're laughing at yourself. It reminds me of that quote by um, a renowned physicist told Robert McNamara in 1961 that World World War One was considered the chemists war. World War Two considered the physicists war. World War Three would be the social scientists war. It's the first time ever where corporations and governments have found essentially a backdoor into the human psyche right not only that they follow us everywhere they're in our homes even if we don't have these smart devices and these smart meters and alexa is it is that the amazon platform uh, or siri the apple platform which also mm. comes out of darpa we can go into that mm. but you know, through our obsession with devices, we are hooked. And there's really not much hope for us when you look at the kind of the psychological stuff that's been going on with digital technology, because it, um, 
it basically appeals to the same dopamine and oxytocin reward centers in the brain that cocaine slot machines and cigarettes appeal to. So we're basically rewiring our, our neuroplasticity for the digital experience. And those guys that are behind it, Silicon Valley, and of course their, their military and intelligence partners, they work hand in glove with psychologists to build their apps and to build those platforms to have the maximum and optimum appeal to taking advantage of, of our weaknesses are our, our, uh, our neuroplasticity effectively. So we're building, we're building receptor sites all the time for digital technology. And of course, we're being forced, more of our lives is being forced online. We are migrating online wholly, you know, from, from our work to our interpersonal relationships to even our descent, people are descending online. I mean, I had a conversation with my mum some months ago and she's awake. And it's great having members of the family that know what's going on. But, you know, she said, well, it's great that we can go on Facebook and we can connect and communicate and we can uh, and we can, you know, we can rebel against this. And of course, I've said to her, well, well, actually, you're not really doing anything until you're out in the streets and you're you're working towards a critical mass. You're not really achieving anything. You're basically communicating within their within their prism, within their nexus, their digital nexus. And you're doing exactly what they want you to do because there is an element of this where they want us online dissenting because the more that we're online doing all of this, our brain is telling us that we're actually doing something positive, that we're making some significant headways in our, in our resistance and our dissent. But of course, we're using their devices. We're using the architecture for all of the reasons that it was designed for, and that is to, to keep us, you know, dumbed down and controlled and surveyed and operating um, within their kind of pre-designated coordinates. And I covered a lot of this in the, in the article. So mm. I basically looked first at, uh, at Google, which, of course, you know, these are the guys that pioneered um, the, the trading of our privacy for digital mobility. Cough, cough, don't use Google, cough, cough. Okay, okay. There's so many out there, isn't there? But a lot of them just, they sort of piggyback on, on, the, big, on the big search engines anyway, whether you're using DuckGoGo or, I don't know, I hear Brave is a good one. But, but um, you know, it was, uh, th these platforms were, you know, it's like, it's like a gift horse, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, or as I put in my article, look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but these platforms were sold to us and they gave us some great mobility. And I use many of the Google um, apps myself from, from you know Google Docs to Google Drive. I need to migrate away from that personally. It's very difficult to, but I mean, Google comes out of a, a CIA and NSA program that um, it, it's, it was called MDDS, but it was also known as birds of a feather. Mm. And it was, um, it was a, a tool that the NSA and CIA were developing as the digital revolution was underway in the mid nineties. And they wanted to capture um, what they dubbed birds of a feather formations. And that's when 
uh, flocks of birds fly together in rhythmical patterns because they were particularly interested in, in how those principles of movement would affect the way that groups and communities would eventually move together online. Would they move together in an organized way so that their movements could be tracked and traced? And if their movements um, could be tracked in an organized way, could those people be identified later according to their digital fingerprints? So at that time, the NSA, the CIA, <clears throat> through the MDDS program, were working with a number of different universities, including Stanford. And amongst the first grants provided by that program uh, were provided via Stanford to two PhDs, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. And, and that funding, together with another disbursement from an interagency consortium that included DARPA and the NSA, that became the seed funding that was used to establish Google. And when you look at Google and everything that it has achieved since that time, then you can really see um, what, what they were up to. You know, I think they, they exceeded their expectations. This is the intelligence state. I think they went beyond the call of duty in indexing and recording and then I later identifying uh, users' movements according to their, to their um, fingerprints. They went further by actually developing the means to manipulate those movements and to to basically um to, to railroad us into different ideologies opinions to to push particular narratives but also to use crowd psychology and a number of other important uh, psychology landmarks to to basically gain control over us um few people understand the extent to which uh, Silicon Valley is the alter ego of um, the intelligence state. And even fewer um, realize the impact that this has had on the public sphere. Because, of course, we mistake digital mobility for freedom. Um, we mistake the hours of pleasure that we have using, you know, using tech, using our devices, uh, the freedom that we have as consumers we our, our entire value systems have changed dramatically as a consequence of this and all of this is really worrying but um mm. to really understand the extent to which um uh silicon valley has been infiltrated by the intelligence state and why that's happened you've got to go back much further in time and what i what i um went through in in the article was particularly the psyops and the counterinsurgency that uh, was mastered during World War II when combat propaganda was used against the German people to lower their morale, but also to incite hatred of uh, the Nazi party to try and create some, some change from within Germany. So psyops are based, or counterinsurgency which is where PSYOPs come, comes from, is basically the military doctrine that's used against non-military uh, actors in, in, a, in a situation of war. So it's used against communities of ordinary people to try and win them over 
to a particular ideology and a particular cause. So in World War II, you had um, you had uh, essentially social psychologists um, being employed by the U.S. military to help the military plan their their psyops against the German people. And around this time, the U.S. government became the biggest employer of psychologists in the U.S. They still are when you look at all the various agencies that employ psychologists. And this whole intersection of um, social psychology and military strategy, it's called gray area operations. Um, And it came to a head in uh, the 1940s and 1950s through uh, the Office of Scientific Research and Development. And um, this office would would plan the U.S. government's psychological operations. Um, They were um, uh, uh, very involved in the U.S. war effort in World War Two. And of course, a lot of the architecture that was built around World War Two using social scientists, it it played an important role following the war in the beginning of the Cold War. Because. You had all of the Soviet satellites in Europe and in South America and in Asia, and you had a lot of domestic populations that whose hearts and minds needed to be won by by U.S. foreign policy interests. So you had the Office of Scientific Research and Development in World War Two that later evolved into um, OSRD, which is the Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare. And um, this this organization, this this um, this uh, sort of quasi military um, research organization would uh, would would um, plan all of the psychological operations against the Soviet satellites, counterinsurgency. Um, They produced sort of leaflets and books um, to that they put into those different countries. They were particularly interested in understanding um, the the mind of insurgency. This was a very important part of what they were doing because they kind of understood that a lot of social change was happening via grassroots movements from, from ordinary people. And they wanted to understand the emotional, the intellectual character of of people whose who could whose thoughts and actions could lead to revolution and they wanted to know um they wanted to understand why people were inclined towards uh revolutionary ideas and and what they could do to try and interrupt that process so this begins a very kind of uh nefarious are are you referring to project camelot well, Project Camelot, that kind of comes a little bit later. Oh, and sorry, I'm jumping the gun. You are jumping the gun slightly. So in 1956, you had an organization called SORO, and that was the Special Operations Research Office. And they were interested in defining the political and social causes of uh, communist revolution. What were the laws governing social change? What are the theories of communication and persuasion, right? These are very important Um, ideas here. What are the theories of communication and persuasion that could be used to transform public perception? So already through sorrow, 
they're looking to use anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists to analyze social systems theory, um, looking at the society and culture of numerous different countries, particularly in South America, in Latin America. What were the universal laws governing um, social behavior? What are the mechanisms of persuasion? And if they could understand the psychological factors that sparked revolution, they could, in theory, um, predict and intercept those revolutions before they got off the ground, right? So all of this stuff is quite, you know, it's, it's very deep, uh, very political, but it, it had significant impact on the social sphere uh, during the course of the 50s and the 60s. Now, one of the, the projects that, was, that came out of Sorrow um, was Project Camelot, and it also went by the name um, Methods for Predicting and Influencing Social Change and Internal War Potential. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't roll off the tongue very nicely, does it? <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue very nicely. <laughs> now, Project Camelot, it was really short-lived, but it, because it was officially abandoned when uh, public academics in South America, in Latin America, and I believe it was in Chile, they realized the kind of imperialistic motives of the U.S. foreign policy um, uh, strategy that was behind this, right? Because it was... Project Camelot was particularly focused on suppressing insurgency, suppressing social change in South America. And of course, when you look at all of the, the U.S. foreign policy influence across the South American continent, you can see that a lot of the, the ideas behind Project Camelot have been used extensively. So whilst it was, it was ostensibly shut down, the core of the project survived. But the whole the whole idea behind Project Camelot was to build a what they classified as an early uh, a computerized early warning radar system for left wing revolutionaries. And what could what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And of course, at that time, the left it was the left that presented the biggest threat to to U.S. foreign policy. Right? It was mm. it was. Um, you know, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movements, it was socialism, it was communism, it was trade unionists. And as I go into a bit more detail in my article, uh, in part two of it, you can see how, you can see what the result of all that, all of that has been, especially throughout COVID, when you, when you see how, how complicit um, the left has been in a lot of the authoritarianism that we've seen right through through you know the new normal and and the biosecurity the biosecurity state so there you can you can basically see how the protracted um uh um counterinsurgency strategy against the left how it has succeeded in infiltrating and co-opting left-wing ideologies but but going back to project camelot a bit like sorrow the idea was to understand um, the, the causes of, of social revolution and, again, to identify the actions within the realms of behavioral science that could be taken to suppress um, insurrection. And um, just quickly before you continue, when you say sorrow, for those listening, we're not saying sorrow as in sadness. 
No, we're saying that the Special Operations Research Office. So, yeah, so it was so so S O R O S O R O exactly mm. S O R O. So what what I what I basically what I discussed in in the article was that um, though Sorrow was eventually shut down, the the core of the project survived. Within a few years of sorry, pro, Project Camelot that is. Um, within a few years of of Project Camelot being sort of officially um, uh, uh, being officially shut down, the the uh, DARPA or ARPA as it was called when it was established by Eisenhower um, in 1958 um, began a project to, um, uh, to, to, to began a project called the Interneting Project or the ARPANET. And this was a project that was uh, set up to decentralize com computer communications within the US military. And the idea was that um, with a decentralized co computer communications network, the US could withstand a Soviet strike without the strike blacking out the entire network. So they began work on on effectively um, a, a computer system, a computer network. And this, of course, um, is where the oh. internet, this is where the internet begins, right? And it culminated in 1969 with the first computers being connected in universities across the US. Um, in 1973, the ARPANET was born. It was um, the, the, the prototypical um, communications network that was born from, you know, 15 years of research. And eventually that was privatized. So it went out to IBM, MCI, the government eventually um, uh, created a dozen or so public private network providers that are today considered, you know, the, the, the biggest um, media outlets or communications companies in the world, including Verizon, Time Warner, AT&T, and Comcast. But when you look at the internet and what it has achieved, you can really see the roots of this project in programs like Project Camelot and in um, these research, um, these, these quasi-research organizations, including Sorrow. So DARPA is the De Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and it was originally created as ARPA in 1958 by President Eisenhower. And it was one of these kind of military agencies that was established to help the U.S. close the missile gap with the Soviets. And they were involved in everything, all important advancements in technology and research. So everything from the internet through to um, uh, computing all comes out of all comes out of DARPA. They so haven't gone away. I'm sorry. They haven't gone away. They haven't gone away. They're still there. And then interestingly, the first director of, of um, the agency was a guy called JCR Licklider. Now he's considered the father of computing, the founding father of computing. And he was their first uh, director and he uh, was responsible for a, a, a department within DARPA that was called the Information Processing Techniques Office. 
and um, IPTO, as they're also known, they, they've been responsible for just about every major advancement in computer communications since the 1960s. What's interesting about Lickleader is like Mark Zuckerberg, he is a psychologist, he's a psychology major. He's not a information technology guy, he's a psychologist. But he saw information technology and behavioral and cognitive science issues as being interconnected. So you can see from the, from the very beginning of the internet that uh, cognitive science and, and behavioral science or behavioral econ economics played a very important part in how the internet and modern computing came about. And um, in one of his famous papers, I mean, he's produced many famous papers over the years, all of which speak to the digital revolution. But um, he, he produced one paper that talked about the idea that the human mind would one day merge seamlessly with computers, right? And he was talking about this back in the 1950s and the 1960s. He sounds and like Klaus Schwab. It sounds like Klaus Schwab, yeah, absolutely. On, on, but more kind of a, more, more of a technocrat, I'd say, than, than Klaus Schwab. Um, but when you look at DARPA and you look at um, brain-computer interface as an area of um, computing or the internet, DARPA have gone on to fund just about every major advancement in the development of brain-computer interface uh, technology over eight decades now. And that includes yes. Elon, Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, right? They're a partner of Neuralink who are, who are developing fully, impl fully implantable wireless brain-machine interfaces because mm, that's where they want the us. Back of your, the back of your head. That's where they want us. And if you look at kids today and the amount of digital blue screen time that they're getting and just how hooked they are, because at least for you and I, we kind of remember the days before the internet, we still have yeah, sort of. <laughs> the vestiges of a life pre-digital, right? We, you know, we we experience that of, mm. of hooking up in an analog way of being able to coordinate and organize ourselves either with pen and paper or or making plans outside of the digital kind of um, nexus. So, kids today growing up with just the prolific nature of digital technology. And of course, I think a large part of, uh, of COVID was about advancing that. I mean, mm. even Eric Schmidt, who, who is now advising the city of New York in, you know, integrating the city into the post COVID era. Following he was the all... former CEO of Microsoft. Eh? He is the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. Ugh, right? Google, sorry. I mean, Google. he's a former CEO. So he, he basically said that COVID escalated an overhaul to digital by about 10 years. And that's that's kind of in the first six months. He said that wow. back in 2020, right? So when you look at all of the schools and how they all kind of went onto the cloud, the remote learning, all of this is, is priming us towards being in that digital, in that digital rubric. This is this is where it's going. Okay. I think if there's a Trojan, if, if COVID is a Trojan horse, then inside of that Trojan horse is the technocracy, is the digital takeover. And it is the advancement of all of these Machiavellian 
strategies and, and programs that have been raging online that have come out of the intelligence state and which the fronts the the private company the 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 pretend private companies like google and facebook have been um bringing about right so kids today they're going to be begging for google brain implants i would suspect in the next you know five six years we've already got the the metaverse and the ai headsets and you know coming out of facebook so you know this this is where it's all going for sure. Are we not being are we not being overly paranoid? Let me throw a spanner in the works. Are we not are we not being like our parents were and their parents were going, Oh, you know, I remember the good old days, you know. But we never had our work, our relationships, our creativity, our pleasure mediated by third party intelligence mm. and military operatives. We never and, had that before. And algorithms. And algorithms. And there's nothing less human than an algorithm. I mean, it's like this. When I type something into Google and Google finishes the sentence for me, and then I mistakenly think that uh, Google is relating to me personally. Google isn't relating to me. It's relating to the hundreds of thousands of other people who have also written that same sentence in there. So it's you basically leveling me against the collective. It's leveling me into the crowd, the crowd psychology. And the first thing to go there is the individual. Mm. You yeah. know, it's a war on, on, it's a war on, on individuals. And I mean, I was on Facebook up until, I don't know, I, I did, I was off Facebook for many years. And then I went on there in like May, 2020, because I needed somewhere to vent my frustration. I thought I could use Facebook to build some community. But every every dissenting post that I uh, put out there, it reached about five people of my one thousand um, friends on there. And yeah, many of these really old friends. But what it also did, what I noticed, is the ones that were most vocally in opposition to anything I ever had to say on the matter of COVID and lockdowns and mandates and all of that stuff, they would get my post. All right, it's almost like Facebook deliberately put my post in front of people um, who had and angst with what I was saying, because right. the more people like that come at you on, on a platform like Facebook, the more they just, they just drown out your dissent. You just don't want to be there anymore. And you, you know, people would sooner put a picture of their lunch or, yeah. you know, their cat because they're going to get more likes and with more likes, they're going to get more dopamine. They're going to get more oxytocin. So, they're no longer there for the ideology. They're there for the cocaine, for the uh, for the slot machine, for for the cigarette break. And wanna... again, this is totally like um, transforming our culture and our value systems. Um, it's it's, I mean, it's 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 re it's rewiring the human. It's rewiring the human. Like my my mm. understanding of the way an old gent would go and vote. Let's say in the nineteen sixties or seventies, he'd go to the the voting room at the polling station and he'd, he'd draw the curtain behind him and he'd put his ex on the ballot and he'd go home and his wife would ask him, who did you vote for? And he'd, you know, he'd keep it to himself. This is an important bit of like personal information that is his, is his political will. Now, what we do these days is we all go on to Facebook or Twitter or not you and I so much, but your average ordinary person will, will start rambling Okay, we'll start just putting it out there, their, their beliefs, their ideas. Mm. 
And of course, when you're up against the crowd like that and you're up against the algorithms, and we, as we know, because of Facebook's um, uh, intervention in the U.S. elections, where they basically, you know, it came out, didn't it? In what was it in 2016 that that they they helped Trump win the elections because you're talking, they you're talking you're talking about Cambridge Analytica, exactly, exactly. So. You know, th this means that our political will goes out the window, our ideals, our belief systems all go out the window. And it's, you know, again, it just brings us into the herd, into the crowd psychology. But when you look at the psyops and you look at counterinsurgency, then you really see that crowd psychology. It's, you know, you, you and when you see all of the psychology that's been used throughout COVID, I mean, I think COVID largely took happened online anyway. I think it was like I, I, I referenced in my, my article the social contagion study. Do you remember reading mm -hmm. reading that bit? And that's yeah. this this is like um, a, a very, you know, questionable study that's probably illegal anyway, that Facebook it manipulated um the the it manipulated the content that users would see right there was uh, there was neg negatively charged emotions and there was positively charged emotions and they wanted to find out if these emotional states were contagious on social media platforms so if you saw a post and it was a you know a negative a negatively charged emotional post how would you then respond later with your posts and of course what they found is that yes those negatively charged posts would influence um, Facebook users to then write negatively charged posts themselves. So they basically realized that that Facebook and social media was a fertile ground for spreading emotional states and spreading contagion. Sorry, I've got to add in there. I've got to add yeah. in there. Sorry, Dustin, but yeah. YouTube removed the number of dislikes under videos. Now, if you if you yeah. consider the what how many people use youtube a billion yeah. that is a large number of people who now no longer can see a dislike on a video now that's also exactly playing into what you're just talking about absolutely absolutely yeah and of course the kind of videos that you're going to see on there are going to be ones propping up the narrative because they're going to censor everything else um but um you're quite right. I remember seeing like there was a Gavi did there. Gavi is in Bill Gates is Gavi. Yeah. The, yeah, they're, they're in Geneva. They're in Geneva. Right. Well, they they had their roadshow in 2020 and they had all, you know, Boris Johnson. I think it was held in the UK and Bill Gates was talking and world leaders were talking. It was all done online. But I remember seeing that at the time. And it had it was just negative thumbs down from just about everybody. I mean, it was like. <laughs> You know, Biden five thousand well. thumbs down, about fifty thumbs up, and that's with them having their bots, having their kind of army of, uh, you know, of of, of um, cyber intelligence, military intelligence personnel actually giving it likes. Uh, Joe and Biden you, also gets huge amounts of thumbs downs. Okay, I bet he does. Yeah, mm. and it's incredible because we forget that Google is a shareholder, right? In one of the vaccine companies. Is it, is it Moderna? Uh, AstraZeneca, Astra, 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 Astra I think incredible. it is. It's insider trading, isn't it? When you start mm. um, censoring any content that <laughs> criticizes or at least, you know, 
shows you the real data about vaccines. But, it, you know, the, the whole system masquerades under this sort of fair, egalitarian, balanced um, system. But it just it just doesn't do its own housekeeping. It'll do our housekeeping for us. But, you know, it doesn't those though the elites mm. don't play by the same rules and they're not subject to the same sc scrutiny. Um, uh, you know, they're they're, they're beyond, um, you know, they have impunity, don't they? And, and of course, yeah. the more we migrate to a digital world, the more that they have all of their architecture in place to continue this. What I'm what I'm sensing from everything you've told me thus far, Dustin, is the incredible amount of military slash CIA slash US government engagement in nation states, but it's but it seems to be shifting toward to away from nation states and more towards ideologies. Am I right? I believe so, one hundred percent. Because it is going back to the the Cold War, going back to Vietnam, where you had the Viet Cong and you had grassroots movements who had the power through an idea to sow the seeds of um, dissent that would lead to revolution, that would lead to uprisings and revolutions. And of course, they knew that, and they developed architecture and weapons to basically counter that dissent. And that's counter. So is that is that Oppenet? Is that Oppenet's involvement in Vietnam? I I think so, to a degree, yes, to a degree. I think Oppenet Oppenet um, was important in Vietnam, um, but I think what Vietnam is more about is actually it's a lesson for the national security state and for US foreign policy interests, because it shows them um, where regime change can happen, where significant change that would threaten US foreign policy interests can happen. And that is from the grassroots. Mm. So from that time onwards, you have a protracted campaign against, firstly, in, uh, in the Soviet satellites, but more, but increasingly, throughout the 60s and 70s, that was that war was taken home onto US soil and on British soil. And, you know, that they that the enemy switched from the Viet, Viet Cong to the anti-war, the the civil rights movements, trade unionists. And, you know, you've got all of these programs that came out of the US, like um, COINTEL Pro, which you probably heard of. Um. No, I haven't. It, it was like this this FBI, a uh, legal FBI operation over about 15 years from uh, the mid 50s that was designed to disrupt, discredit and neutralize anyone active, um, anyone considered a threat to national security, but in its loosest, loosest possible kind of definition. So that could be and it was, you know, the women's liberation movement, the Boy Scouts of America were targeted by by uh, COINTELPRO. And they were implicated in the the murder of uh, the Black Party, Black Party chairman, Fred Hampton. So they murdered him. Uh, I mean, you can, you know, research that. You can find even on Wikipedia Gee. that's one of their, you know, staples. This is the, FB the FBI. The FBI, the FBI committed murder and blackmail. I mean, they 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 recorded a sex orgy tape of Martin Luther King, 
and they sent it to him and they threatened to release it to the public unless he committed suicide. So that's another one of their programs. And um, so it's not just your customary kind of wiretapping, infiltration, media manipulation. It is murder and blackmail. And then you've got you've got like Conus Intel is another counterinsurgency program that was uh, you had this Washington Post expose um, in the 1960s by a guy called Christopher Pyle. And he revealed that the U.S. Army had um, been involved in this like massive nationwide surveillance operation, uh, spying on virtually everybody active in dissent so that's you know people this is students at colleges um engaging in sort of anti-war protests it's um it's left-wing presentations by left-wing professors at universities it's even church meetings but it's the u.s army that are that have gone undercover right they've sent their agents in to these movements and they've infiltrated those movements and they've spied on those movements and this was going on for years and um, then it reminds me of uh is it is it operation paperclip uh the one that followed uh the warren commission report after jfk's assassination was I it paperclip i thought paperclip was the no i might have it wrong that's why i'm asking that's no that was the senate church commission i think you're referring to wasn't it paperclip the... was wasn't it the 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 nazi um i might, oh, be wrong. It might have been that no, I also might have it wrong. I'm just I'm thinking of when the CIA infiltrated the media okay. after the Warren after ah, the yes. uh, yeah. after the Warren after the Warren Commission report. Yeah. Well, you yeah, I've seen that there's a video, isn't there, where there's a Senate committee hearing and it's uh, the CIA admitting to uh, embedding their agents yes. in, specifically into Hollywood. Yeah. And there is an element, I think, of what's going on today. Um, you know that that stems from uh, decades of Hollywood sensationalism, of, of feeding our, fueling our desire for this kind of fictional take on reality um, that gives rise to these existential threats from Mocking, a disease. Mockingbird, Dustin, Mockingbird. Operation that's, Mockingbird, that's, that's right. And go. interestingly, you know, when when the whole George George Floyd thing happened in the US. And of course, we all got taken aback by that for the first sort of yeah. half an hour of seeing the video. It was like, wow, <laughs> this is a great moment for the people. We finally see that the state, you know, they've uh, they've betrayed themselves, you know. And But then, of course, we realized, shit, this is a massive psyop, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's funny because within a couple of days of that whole thing happening, Netflix had an oven-ready spike lee movie uh that was all about black lives matter obviously it didn't talk about george floyd but right the timing of it is uncanny yeah i mean it's uncanny and of course netflix is uh you know he's like isn't he edward bernays and freud's sort of great nephew or something the guy behind netflix and again it's it's psychology it's social psychology you know um but yeah, it's 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 mental. I mean, in the US, you know, you had all these counterinsurgency programs. You had the Senate Church Committee, like Frank Senate was the the guy that um, that revealed um, decades of of serious systematic abuse by the CIA. 
who had been intercepting the mail and eavesdropping on the telephone calls of, you know, civil rights and, and anti-war activists. And he actually said at that time, because it was the, the NSA who he was, uh, well, it was the NSA and the CIA. But he said at that time that the NSA's capabilities could at any time be turned around on the American people because of all the stuff that was going on in the 60s and 70s. And of course, when you get to people like Edward Snowden, you know, a couple of decades, three decades later. and 2013. And, yeah, exactly. Even, you know, three or four decades later. And at that time, in 2013, the, the NSA were collecting 200 billion pieces of data every month. And that was yes, gleaming gleaming everyone's emails, WhatsApp messages, phone calls. And this is in 2013. I mean, I imagine that at that time, I was probably online 40% of the time. At this time, I'm online 80% of the time. Digital technology is even more prolific today than it was then. So God knows uh, to what degree they are listening into everything because they've got algorithms right that will track a particular word or that will follow you around once you click on a particular video but you know particular bit of dissenting content so they've kind of got us right where they want us this is this is the tragedy and then when you look at cambridge analytica and what was revealed there during the 2016 elections then you kind of think well how are we ever going to organize ourselves? Because the more we use digital technology, the more we're just, we are, we're rewiring our neuroplasticity to these tools and these devices to the point where we just simply forget other ways of doing things outside. It's not so much that we're lazy or complacent, it's that we're actually reprogramming ourselves. And this is the scary thing about all of this is that- You don't know it. I'm sorry? We don't know it. Yeah. I mean, we are kind of self-policing and self-programming ourselves. And it goes really deep, man. The 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 kind of the infiltration of the human psyche that, that plays out through digital technology and through this kind of control of the ideological landscape. Um, I mean, you know the quote by that guy, uh, William Casey, who's he's reputed to have said to Ronald Reagan, will know our disinformation is complete when mm -hmm. everything the American public believes yeah. is false, right? And when you look at that, and then you look at today's cultural zeitgeist, Casey would have been in transports of delight, marveling at yeah. where we are today with, you know, there is a series of, of a carousal of crisis narratives in the age of communi mass communication and you've got a population that are ready to trade their values for whatever yeah. um, morally acceptable narrative trends. It's just incredible. When you look at the level of support for um, the Ukraine. Yeah, it's the same thing as, as COVID, yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as COVID. But it's it's you've also got like woke, I think, is an important part within that you know you got from from woke to the war in ukraine to well woke to COVID to the your the war in ukraine people are no longer making their own uh pilgrimages to the truth right the truth is being served oven ready
by the political higher ups. It's been handed it's, to them on a plate, isn't it's it? It's so simple. Sorry, but it's so simple to test. I mean, can you go onto Facebook right now and and add a Yemen flag to your profile? <laughs> I don't think you can, but you can easily add a Ukraine flag. I know, or Palestine, or Syria. Yeah. yeah. But it's almost like it's they are deliberately. Um, they are deliberately creating these substructures of reality. They're creating these implausible, increasingly implausible narratives to gain our will and our consent. Because ultimately, you know, if you can convince somebody to um, exist within a fictional world like this, to be chasing these fabrications, these um, false prophets, Mm -hmm. you've got absolute total control over them. You know, you have ideologically conquered that person. And I think there's something very deep going on there where there is an element to this where they are showing you that they're deceiving you. And but still, you're still following the narrative. You're still going along with it. Humanity has perjured themselves right on an industrial scale. And um, it's it's just incredible. I mean, what's next? Where is well, this going to go? Since we're still, since we, since we are talking about Facebook, tell me a little bit about LifeLog. Okay, so LifeLog, I, I was, I, it was Whitney Webb's article actually that got me interested in uh, in that particular episode in the kind of military origins of the internet. And incidentally, I would highly recommend your. Um, your listeners, your your audience, to to read the secret military of the history of the internet by Yasha Levine, also known as Surveillance Valley. It's just mind blowing because he goes into a lot of this, not so much about Facebook, but certainly about the JCR Licklider and DARPA and Project Camelot and into the psyop counterinsurgency aspect of the military origins of the internet. But it was it was Whitney Webb's article that kind of woke me up to Facebook's you know, origins and um, whether this is a legitimate social media platform that was born out of, you know, a dorm room at Harvard or whether, in fact, um, it's it's the very opposite to that. Well, so it's obviously it obviously comes from a dorm room in, in uh, Harvard because that's what Hollywood says and Hollywood doesn't lie. Well, there you go. Hollywood would not. Uh, yeah, we know that, don't we? <laughs> so basically, you've got this program called LifeLog, and it was um, a military program developed by DARPA, of course. Um, and it was through their Information Processing Tex- Techniques Office. This is the office that was originally headed up by JCR Licklider. Yeah. And its stated aim was to, to basically create an electronic diary of a person's life. So that's everything. Your... Uh, your tastes, your preferences, what you had for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, who you associate with, where you go, what you talk about, who are your connections, what do you listen to, what do you watch, what do you read, everything. Now, interestingly, there was another program that also came out of DARPA. Um, In fact, no, it didn't come out of DARPA. It came out of um, OSRD and via a guy called Vannevar Bush, no relation to... Prescott Bush or George Bush um, Jr. or Sr. And there was this guy, Vannevar Bush, <clears throat> who worked within the U.S. Army's psychological operations during World War II, came up with a hypothetical um, uh, 
computer communications device called the Memex. And he wrote about this in an Atlantic, the Atlantic magazine, in an article. And this is in like 1945 or something. So this guy already is a, he's a psyops expert and he heads up there, you know, the, the psychological operations during World War II through this OSRD. And this particular device, the Memex, that he came up with as a hypothetical project, it would basically store a person's books, records, communications. It would be mechanized and it could be consulted with exceeding speed and flexibility. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing the, the, the genesis of the idea of something called total information awareness. And what this is, is basically the highest prize and attainment for the intelligent state. Because don't forget, the intelligent state is just paranoid. It needs a job and it's paranoid and it wants to know everything about everyone. OK, so mm. a, um, a Memex type device um, would give them that information. So this is where the real kind of um, the, the history of a Facebook type um, um, platform um, it comes from, it comes out of U.S. Army's um, psychological operations during World War II. LifeLog, and we're going up to, we're in 2004, I think now at this point. Um, LifeLog was ostensibly shut down the very day that, or the very year. I couldn't actually find whether it was the day or the year, but it was shut down the same year, the same day that Facebook went online. So that's the first kind of red flag. Um but there was there was also more than just LifeLog. There was something called the the um, Information Awareness Office, the IAO, and that was another DARPA surveillance and intelligence operation. And it also converges with the MDDS program, which is the the program that was used to provide the seed funding to Google that we talked about earlier. So MDDS came together with other, a number of other programs that DARPA had developed with the ambition of gaining total information awareness over ordinary people. Now, the IAO, the Information Awareness Office, it was ostensibly shut down, just, just like um, Project Camelot was, because it came under scrutiny from privacy advocates who basically went nuts that the, the military were attempting to gain total information awareness over ordinary citizens who had done nothing wrong. Okay. So there was no, there was no precedence at that time. This is, this is, uh, there was no precedence for them to, 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 to be able to implement this. So it was ostensibly shut down the same year, just like LifeLog, Facebook went online and its objective was to, um, to record, to gather and to store, um, the, 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 personal emails, social networks, lifestyles, credit card receipts, shopping habits, medical records of every U.S. citizen. And all of this sounds remarkably like the Green Pass, actually. Um, and the idea was that the information that was collected would funnel back to intelligence agencies under the guise of um, predicting and preventing terrorist terrorist incidents before they happened now all of this is really reminiscent of project camelot because project camelot was an early a computerized early warning radar system for left-wing revolutionaries and of course this later becomes in the age of you know the threat of terrorism and following the patriot yeah. act in the us and the anti-terror laws here in the uk 
the enemy shifted, you see. It shifted from the left-wing revolutionary to the domestic terrorist. Anti-establishment. I'm sorry? Anybody who's anti-establishment. Anyone. Well, it even goes beyond that because it was just anybody. It was all American citizens. And this is the worrying thing. You know, it's it's not so much that it's just dissidents, it's everybody. And then when you consider Gee. how the Internet has used crowd psychology to basically level us, for, take us away from being individuals into, you know, groups. And we are being primed into that sort of, you know, into that group thing. It's like what they're trying to do is they're trying to prevent any level of real change, any level of real dissent. No matter how noble the cause is, it just ain't going to happen whilst we've got the Internet and whilst we've got all of these uh, instruments and tools like Facebook and, and Google. It's, and it's exactly think, the same as the last two years. Sorry, I'm interrupting yeah, you, but it it's is exactly the same, it's the same, as the same thing. Yeah, it is. And, and when you add to that the kind of the global emergency model, then there is always some reason for them, you know, the global emergency model then becomes the you see there's another element to all of this and that is that i do believe that within human nature there is something that is there, there is an activist within all of us and we do want a cause to support and we do want a fair and just and egalitarian world we do have that kind of organizing cooperative aspect to to our humanity mm. and they are exploiting that through let's protect grandma by giving up our freedoms and wearing a mask and not leaving the house, or let's start supporting those poor people in the Ukraine who are the victims yeah. of Russian totalitarianism. So it's like they know that we are inclined towards revolutionary. Um, uh, we, we are inclined towards dissent and revolution and seeing a fairer more egalitarian world and therefore they are coming up with those oven ready um causes for us to support before we find them ourselves and you've seen that with black lives matter um the whole wokeism yeah. is all about that transgender is all yeah. about that it's all about giving the impression that the system and society wants to look after its most vulnerable members and that you know these are the oven ready causes that they're creating for us to on board with but when you when you look at so going back to facebook because that sort of digress slightly there um interestingly um the f some of the first people that came on board with facebook are quite um questionable characters so i have a i have a feeling you're gonna you're gonna say peter Thiel. I'm going to say Peter Thiel, but I'm going to say Sean Parker first. So he's the guy oh, from Napster, from Napster. And he's he <laughs> basically what they say about him is that at the age of 16, he hacked into a Fortune 500 company and he was arrested by the FBI. And at about this time, he was recruited by the CIA. And he is I think he's like one of the first people that, that Zuckerberg and uh, Moscovich brought on board with Facebook. So already you're seeing that they're implanting, they're embedding an operative in there, right? That they have got on board, whether they've coerced him into it or sold him some ideology or promised him some wealth or fortune, whatever, you know, 
these guys can make or break a person. And obviously, Sean Parker's done very well for himself. But he brought Peter Thiel into Facebook as its first outside investor. And I know that when we last spoke, you uh, we talked about Peter Thiel, didn't we? We or No, we talked about Cambridge very, Analytica. Yeah, very briefly. We talked about Cambridge Analytica briefly because you referenced yeah. somebody else within that firm that seemed to be kind of on our on our level slightly. Patrick Fagan. Okay. And I just wonder because I've I follow Elon Musk just because I'm intrigued. I also at, am. I'm sorry? I also am. I can't I can't quite pin him. But I listen, he is definitely there's no doubt about it. He's one of them, man. And because if he didn't exist, he'd need to be invented. And he gives, you know, because don't forget, they're so smart, these people, right? I mean, they have been infiltrating and co-opting and, and waging counterinsurgency wars against uh, ordinary people in, in the Soviet satellites in former Soviet bloc countries mm. for decades. So they know exactly how to do it. And they know that there is going to be an opposition to the narrative and they are going to invent a number of different touchstones for us to go and feel comfortable within and a number of different people who we can inspire we can aspire to, to we can aspire to their ideals and their philosophies i mean look at telegram for example i mean he the two sort of russian brothers that are behind that i mean one of them is you know he's a world economic forum guy and telegram serves as a great it's a great channel for the establishment in the same way that the the onion browser and tor which is the kind of you know the the anarchists anonymous um communities kind of internet go-to when they want to do they want to surf the web in an encrypted way anonymously they use the onion browser and you had the silk road that was also on the Onion Browser on Tor. But Tor, as I pointed out in the article, it's been funded by USAGM or the Broadca Broadcasting Board of Governors since the get-go, since day one. It receives the majority of its funding from a government agency that, that is involved in PSYOPs, that broadcasts US propaganda to sure. um, former Soviet bloc countries. Now, they fund the Tor project. So it serves an important role because... If we were all spread out over the internet, it would be difficult to keep tabs on us. But if we're all in one place, they know exactly where we are. They've got their back door into the Onion browser. They can see exactly what's happening. And likewise, when people like Elon Musk emerge, and he recently announced that he's going to be launching a, a you know, a, a new sort of Twitter type platform, it's like if 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 he does it, somebody else won't do it, and he's mm. got. He's got enough of a following that people will yeah. just automatically follow him. And uh, I think all of this suits their agenda. It gets, you know, gives them an opportunity to control counter narratives and to control effectively the opposition. But I think he's definitely one of them. But Dustin, tell me a little bit about Pell versus Siri. Okay. So Siri is, uh, so again, um, the information processing techniques office that was set up by uh, that that was a, a DARPA um, outfit that that was the agency that Lick Leader um, directed. They basically um, set up a military program 
that later became Siri. And uh, it was it was originally called PAL, P-A-L, the personal assistant that learns. And it was a cognitive computer system designed for military personnel, right? No one else. It was designed for military personnel to help them make military decisions more efficient. And this was eventually spun off as Siri, the virtual assistant on Apple's operating system. So all of the code and architecture that went into building PAL was later transformed into a number of other apps and programs, and Siri was one of them. Now, again, it's just, you know, it's no, there's no coincidence that, uh, you know, Siri comes out of the military. We're all being listened to on our devices, and it's there for a reason, isn't it? And again, this is another one of their total information awareness um, programs. And, um, you know, together with the, the information awareness office and, and LifeLog, these are kind of like the roots of, uh, of Facebook. And then when we look at Facebook and we, you know, we talked about Sean Parker. There is also, of course, as you mentioned, Peter Thiel, and he's behind um, Palantir. And, you know, Palantir is like this kind of like it's what is it meant to be this cool company? It's all about data mining. But ultimately, Palantir is is pretending to be a private company. It is it is funded by in in Qtel, which is so in Qtel own an equity stake in Palantir, firstly. And this um, this was after Palantir started working with the FBI, the Department of Defense, and the CIA. They went as far as actually buying an equity stake in the business. And Palantir is like, it's this data mining force of nature that's been used by, by the US Army in Iraq in the same way that Project Camelot was designed, that Project <laughs> Camelot's stated aim was to identify insurgency and to stop revolutions before they got off the ground. And Palantir has been used for exactly that reason in Iraq. And it's, it's, it's all about predictive policing. So it's yeah. about predicting crimes before they happen. Now, it's also, it's not just in Iraq that they're using Palantir. It's being deployed by police departments inside the US on US soil. And the film Minority Report. It was a documentary. It's a documentary. <laughs> is a documentary about Palantir. And you can really see, I think, the idea behind Palantir. You can just imagine the script writers behind Minority Report coming up with the script for the film as being yeah. the same guys that came up with the idea of asymptomatic transmission. Yes. Because it's the very same predictive policing. Like, you can't leave your house because you might spread a virus that you don't have. So it's taking it to the next level. It's not so much predictive policing but it's like it's predict predicted totalitarianism yeah. because pre you don't even need to be crime yeah pre-crime but you don't even need to be on the verge of committing a crime because as mm. they've they've set up they've established this new benchmark with asymptomatic transmission whereby you don't even have to be anywhere near a crime scene you just are guilty that's it full stop they're throwing the book at you so I think there is definitely a lot of um, there is a lot of pedigree and heritage here with COVID that goes through 
Well, just hang on, hang on. Before, because I'm about to come to that and the vaccine passports or what you refer to as the green, the what? The green pass. The green pass, yeah. It's the same thing. But before that, I I interrupted you and I said PRISM because you're talking about data mining. Yeah. So PRISM. PRISM. Yeah, what was that? So PRISM was the program, the military program, and I believe you can still find it online, PRISM was the NSA's program for data mining. This is before Palantir. This is where they were collecting their 200 billion pieces of data every month, gleaming it from PRISM. And PRISM is the the, the software that was reading the emails and uh, that was listening into the telephone calls and that was um, eavesdropping on um the american population and this is like we've already said this is 2014 Mm. it was 200 billion bits of data at that point lord knows what that number is today because it would have gone global okay this is the 200 billion was just in the us and it wasn't just the 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 nsa it was also um it was also gchq so we were doing exactly the same thing here in the UK because you saw that, you know, Bush and Blair, they were thick as thieves, weren't they? They're mm. like two schoolboys. Oh. When you look at the old oh. video footage of them during the Iraq war, you know, they were up to the very same things. They enacted very similar pieces of legislation, um, the Patriot Act in the US, the anti-terror laws here in the UK. And interestingly, most of the laws that were enacted to ostensibly protect American and British citizens from terrorism, they were never actually used against terrorists. They were used here in mass surveillance. Yeah. What they were doing in the UK, interestingly, is they were actually, they were using it for like for stop and search of like teenage kids in council estates. (laughs) They were, they were stopping and searching them illegally and then arresting them under the anti-terror laws. So it's, um, you know, I think what I was, I was trying to show through all of that was that they, as we've said earlier, they were waging that the, the counterinsurgency that was waged against a particular subset of society Mm. in the sixties, it was insurgents because of their Marxist values. This has over time shifted to anyone holding anti-establishment views. Um, Dustin, I have to quickly stop you and tell you that Cyberdog, who's watching right now from Germany, he had a quick okay. look. He had a quick look to see who the sh- main shareholders of Palantir are, yeah. and he says it's BlackRock and Vanguard. I'm not surprised, man. <laughs> but they're everywhere, and they own everything, and then they own each other. It's just—it's the perfect crime, isn't it? It's the perfect crime, but. They will be the biggest shareholders, but InQtel definitely acquired an equity stake within Palantir. Tell me if I'm correct. A paranoid state has basically used digital technology such as the internet to create or to advance some kind of biometric Orwellian global order. 
and are still doing it right now in the last, particularly the last two years with the advent of uh, a fake pandemic and of course vaccine passports, which I know you want to talk about. I couldn't have said it any better myself, but 100%, um, this is definitely what's happening because it's all related. You know, there's no arbitrary events that pop up within this frame of reference. Everything is related. And yes, the Green Pass is an extension of that very um, objective of gaining total information awareness because the Green Pass or the vaccine passport stores all of that information, the medical records. Um, but more importantly, where it's going, and Catherine Austin Fitz probably talks about this better than I ever could, it's going towards the digital currency and yeah, the control and grid absolutely the the blockchain and that's where they really got us because i think at some point in the future they won't even need uh police or prisons because if you contravene one of their regulations the door of your apartment just won't open and you'll be you know incarcerated in your own ho in your own smart home um but they're already talking about programming the digital currency, and that could include lots of different caveats, such as in the time of a pandemic, you can't spend your money outside of a 50 meter radius from where you live. Um, and we've already seen the kind of social credit system in China where people are seriously punished for holding the wrong set of political beliefs. I mean, yeah. you know, you can uh, you can have your social credit switched <laughs> off there for making a political post online without a permit. And all of this is happening because we can see how they are already kind of criminalizing any form of dissent. In the UK, we've got a new law that is going to be coming out very soon, and it's called, called the Online Harms Bill. And they talk about it. We have that. We have that as well. Okay, because it's all a big global lockstep, isn't it? It's the online, harm, online harms bill. And on the face of it, it's to protect kids from um, stumbling on of, pornography. Of course, of course. It's on the face noble. of it. It's always despite, noble, isn't it? Yeah. Despite the fact that you can go on Twitter as a kid and you can find pornography on Twitter, but what you can't find is anybody, any any important people questioning the COVID narrative because that is going to be censored. But uh, pornography certainly isn't on platforms like Twitter. But the online harm bill is particularly dangerous because it redefines what media, what communications is, you know, in the online world. And, and this is this is despite the fact that and this was talked about by UK Column. They did a great expose of the online harms bill. And basically, we already have the laws. The laws are already in place to regulate us online and ensure we're not doing anything illicit on the internet. They've already got that in place. The laws in the kind of the, the real world in the UK, they they can all be um, applied to, you know, what we do online. But online time is going to seriously affect our ability to communicate. There'll be more um, censorship from big tech um, on any dissenting voices. And I do think that it'll reach a point where we just won't want to be on the internet because it will all be it, at that point, it will all be indoctrination. 
there just won't be anything there for us. And there'll probably at that time be more digital laws than laws in the real world. You'll probably have more people in prison at that time for contravening digital laws than you will have, you know, drug users in the US in prison for yeah. pain. And and, um, and 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 those and those imprisonments won't necessarily be a physical jail, but because everything is smart, yeah. you'll be you'll be basically shut off from everything. Yes, absolutely. And they, they are. They've they've gone from an overt sense of uh, oppression to a covert one mm. and i think maybe to a degree the whole war in russia is an element of that it's showing you a very overt situation of violence so that you can you can easily spot the enemy there and you can choose mm. you know that putin is your uh, as your um as your object of hatred whereas what what the deeper agenda is doing is it's introducing this very covert system of regulation and it's uh and as you say it will be your social credits being switched off your digital currency being yeah. inactive um they will um monitor and regulate where you spend your money and if you've had meat you know two days in a week then you yeah. will you will have sanctions. You will lose your heating at home for a day or two. If you voted for Trump, you if you'll you be voted for Trump, exactly, exactly. Mm. So they are slowly but surely taking over our commons, but they're doing it in a very covert way, and that is probably down to the fact that they know that human nature and that that because they have they own all the best psychology papers and they employ all the best psychologists, they know that if they start going about this in a very overt fashion, people will spot it. They will see it. They'll realize what's happening and it's they the will frogs, resist it. The frogs in boiling water scenario. The frogs in boiling water. Exactly. But it's, um, mm. you know, there is, there is something going on that is just very deep. It's all about kind of neutralizing our ability to think for ourselves. And, it is getting us acquainted with these kind of implausible events playing out in the world stage. You know, zero lessons have been learned by the vast majority of people over the past two years. They go yeah. aimlessly, they go aimlessly from quarantine camp to air raid shelter into whatever direction their political betters are pointing them to deride mm. whomever is nominated as the scourge of society. And People don't, uh, they don't question, well, hang on, this war in Ukraine, it's all very convenient. This has happened right at this point where we switch horses midstream from COVID to something else. They just, but I think there is an element of um, cognitive dissonance there, deliberately um, deceiving people and showing them that they are being deceived, but still that, you know, those suckers are going along with it. This is also why I drink. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you would you would think that people would see some of those markers. Yes, you would, but then they're not seeing them. They're not seeing them. This is this is the tragedy, and they are. They have hacked the human psyche, and they are radically altering what it means to be human, what it means to think and act for yourself. I think the crowd. Mm -hmm psychology plays an important part in all of that um Mass that psychosis. is 
Yeah, well, the mass formation that uh, I think it's more like de-individuation, and that is more about how in groups of people, we tend not to think as individuals, but as members of the crowd. So when you go into a, a supermarket, after, you know, when the, the mask mandate is reintroduced, everyone's wearing a mask. And the person that puts the mask on is not necessarily doing it because he knows it's the right thing to do. He's doing it because he just wants to fit in and be inconspicuous. It's, it's too challenging for him to, yeah. be, uh, to be going against the grain of consensus. And there is a lot of that de-individuation that happens through digital technology. It's a fertile ground for that, to, to level us into the crowd. And of course, they control the crowd because the crowd is like this abstract. There is no crowd. There's only the individual, isn't there? You don't have the rights of the collective. You have the rights of the individual. But of course, it's another one of the tricks that the devil pulls by uh, pretending that they're caring about the collective and that all of these... Uh, you know, these regulations and rules are in place to preserve the collective society at large. But ultimately, the only thing worth protecting is the individual, because that's the only real tangible um, existence within that collective. How do we push back? How do we push back? Well, we need to get organized. And um, it's a very difficult one because they are so organized and we are not. We're not organized at all. I think we need to start moving away from the digital technology. We need to look all of these, all of these nefarious characters, whether they're governments, corporations, BlackRock, Vanguard, the oil companies, the big Klaus tech Rob. companies. I'm sorry. Klaus Schwab. <laughs> Klaus Schwab. They are service providers and we are buying a service. And when we stop subscribing to that service, those service providers will just disappear. Just like Betamax disappeared when VHS came along. Not because VHS went outside the Betamax factory and started uh, burning the factory down. It's because something better came along in systems theory that just replaced the old system. And we need to start. You see, this is goes back to Elon Musk, right? And him talking about setting up this new sort of Twitter type platform is that he's one of them. But we are going under the false security that he's going to do something for us. And then we get lazy and we get complacent. We don't do it for ourselves. But we need to start building our own instruments and tools and architecture. Parallel, to, parallel, to structures. parallel structures that out that belong to us. So we need to pool our resources and our intelligence and we need to come up with a way in which this new system appeals to the normies. And we can do that via competing with the old system on margin, on price, coming up with cheaper options for insurance, for banking. You know, we could be self-banking. We could be self-insuring. We could be coming together with our networks to effectively buy food supply chains, because once we pool our resources, we are powerful. We have a lot of buying power. But it's all about how do we get there? Because we're, we're stuck. You see, we're stuck in their in their digital rubric. We're stuck on Facebook. We're stuck on the cloud, on Google, on on, you know, these Amazon products. So basically what you're saying is get off Google, get off YouTube go on to alternatives, create alternatives. Yes, I think so. I think so. The trouble, of course, with that is that 
all of those alternatives like BitChute, like Odyssey, <clears throat> at some point when they they grow significantly, they're going to need the private equity or venture capital. Mm. And at that point, that's when the vanguards and the black rocks and the fund managers enter the game. They enter the fray and they embed their own people into those organizations. But yeah, we can certainly crowdfund some of those. So what, you're, those saying, yeah, so what you're saying is it has to be decentralized for as it's long as possible. Got to be. It's got to be decentralized and it's got to be localized to a degree. Yes. 100%. So in other words, like stop buying burgers from McDonald's and go to your local yes. butcher rather. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And defend cash while you still got it defend cash physical yeah but it's like what we discussed last time you know the wheels of evolution are are spinning this thing this thing is in motion it's a juggernaut mm. it ain't gonna stop and it you know it could be that we go down fighting and that's why we're all here you know and great we go down with the the sword in our in our hand like the the samurai or the yeah. you know the old the warriors of old but at the same time we can build our communities outside of the system and we need to really get smart about that because if we can come together and bring our ideas together there's no end to human ingenuity um so yeah we we yeah we need to keep trying man well i asked you this last time and some would ask you again but in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I see two thirds of society with uh, their headsets on and uh, they, they do everything online. They don't leave their apartments. They interact with their friends online. They date online. They have sex online. They work online. They play online. They don't leave. That's two thousand. Hold on. Ha have sex online? <laughs> no, never mind. I'm know. not even going to ask. <laughs> and then you've got one third, and we are living in the real world, but we've left digital technology behind. We don't need it. There's nothing there for us anymore. We're living off the land. We're living an analog experience. We're reading books, and we're happy. But but of course, you know, we're under threat from the establishment and the system that's trying to encroach on our free space. That's a pretty good answer. I think that's, that's uh that's an acceptable answer. I'll go with that. <laughs> uh, Dustin Broadbury, where can people find you? So you can find me uh, on my blog, which is www.thecogent, which is T H E C O G E N T thecogent.org so that's my that's my platform where i blog um my articles are all over the alternative media places off like guardian. off guardian but everything that i write goes on there and i tend to put out an article you know each month or so i'm just about to publish something at the moment mm. that's going to be on uh it's going to be on all of the predictive programming the revelation of the method um and that's going to be more of a kind of satire, a shorter article, but I'll, I'll probably publish that in about a week. Dustin Broadberry, you are a phenomenal writer. It's a great pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, man. I really appreciate being here again. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.